every man I've spoken to is carrying some form of shame or trauma from childhood or early life. And it's buried so deep that, you know, a lot of the guys have struggled to face it. And some of them have done it privately. And for me, I was also doing it very like in private in isolation. And it was important for me to start talking about it so others can also open up. And that's kind of where, when I have these conversations with other men, they're very open and transparent and vulnerable about that shame they've carried. And it's even with feeling weak, you know, or feeling like they're not good enough and the shame that comes with it as a man that I should be able to take care of myself. I should be the strong person that protects everyone else around me and provides for everyone. And until you don't shift your perspective, you don't recognize that real strength is in being able to ask for help. Welcome to the Dignity of Suffering. Have you ever been brought to your knees by the challenges of life? What if you could enter the world of the therapist, be a fly on the wall, and hear their stories and insights into life's biggest challenges? Discovering a place to learn from the experiences of others who've tried to find dignity in their suffering. Each week, Mitchell Smolkin takes a candid look at the trials and tribulations of being alive. Mitchell is a registered psychotherapist author and speaker. He hopes to show that slowing down and becoming curious about our human experience can enrich our perspectives and plant our feet more firmly on the ground. Now, here's Mitchell. Welcome to episode 24. This conversation today is quite a close topic to my heart. I interview podcaster and life coach for Candandia who left the corporate world as an engineer and had this realization in his life that it would be important for him to devote his energies and his time to helping facilitate conversations between men. As you'll hear in the podcast, I feel in some ways like I had the privilege of going to a high school that was focused on the arts and theater and in many ways the stigmas around talking especially between men were confronted quite early on but obviously that isn't the case in so many parts of society and furthermore we have to be sure that we do not lump all societies together. This idea of talking about our inner lives, putting language to our experiences, has such an incredible range around the world. And it's very important, I think, not to jump to any kind of ethnocentricity around it, meaning we have to be careful not to look at other cultures through our own lenses and in many ways, because probably the podcasting world tends to reach a bit more of a Western audience, we exclude, I think, to our detriment, the range of ways that masculinity expresses itself around the world. And I like that 
theme in Furkan and my discussion today. There is a great need to foster and facilitate conversation, not in any kind of impositional way that would suggest that there is any one way of being. But when it comes to the fractures of emigration, of moving, which I've spoken about quite often in this podcast, at that stage, there becomes a need to facilitate exploration of one's experience. And that is something I see clinically all the time. So I hope you enjoy my conversation with Furkan. I really liked the generosity of energy and spirit he has to reach out. And I hope you'll check out his podcast, Easy Conversations, and let anyone you know know about his work in case it would be helpful. As usual, let people know about the podcast, subscribe, reach out to me on Instagram at I am Mitchell Smolkin. And without further ado, here is my interview about men talking with men. So it's great to have you, Furkan, on the podcast. And we, we don't have to talk about this, but I was just having a little laugh as we were about to hit record about my series of events today and being a bit a bit <laughs> late for the for the recording and having driven all day and given myself enough time only to be foiled by the unforeseen events of life. And so I don't wanna, you know, I don't wanna put on any any false persona here because I think that you and I are kind of like that we're we're a bit aligned around trying to go into these kinds of conversations and and facilitate them. And so so whether that comes up or not, I just wanted to acknowledge and thank you for being for for flashing me that smile and comforting <laughs> comforting me. Uh but you're the host of this cool podcast called Easy Conversations and maybe we could kind of jump in and maybe just tell my listeners a bit about what that's about and what inspired you to create the podcast. Yeah, sure. Uh, Mitchell, first of all, thank you for having me. And it is ironic. Uh, things don't always work out the way they're supposed to. And and that's kind of been my journey. You know, it's it's a great theme to start. And it feeds into the what inspired me to do the podcast. You know, I had this vision in life where it was like, okay, get educated, get a job, get married, have a family and was living that dream. And then all of it kind of like changed. And I went through a divorce and had limited time with my son. And that allowed me to do a lot of work internally. But then I started talking to other men and having deep conversations about purpose in life and what inspires us and like, how are we making a difference in this world? And I really had very open and vulnerable conversations with friends or, or people I would meet. And, you know, we'd be out for coffee or out at a pub. And I realized that, you know, a lot of people can get a lot of value from these conversations because it's, it's relatable and you're normalizing a lot of these discussions as men we avoid or don't like to show that vulnerable side about ourselves. And, and that really kind of springboarded the whole podcast idea. And then I used the play on words. My business name is Unoya Zen. So I'll kind of use that 
and the whole concept of easy conversations because I want to change that stigma and shift our mindset that, you know, these conversations are only hard because we've created that uh, in our head, right? And and we can make them easy. And, and it's funny, like I've been studying for school right now about exposure therapy. And that's the whole concept of exposure therapy is you expose yourself to that fear only to realize it, it's not as bad as you thought. And that's the whole idea with, with the podcast is having different men come on and occasionally women as well, but talking about mental health, talking about serious issues that people have gone through and been able to, with strength and courage, be able to battle and overcome adversity. And my hope is that when people, other people are listening, they're like, hey, I'm not alone in this struggle. And there's this other person who went through something similar. And all I need to do is maybe ask for help or talk about it openly. So, yeah. I'm getting the sense, and correct me if I'm wrong, but the way that you described having a kind of initial vision for your life, get a job, have a family, and then it sounds like at some point the space opened up and there was this kind of shift where having conversations about being a man or among men mm -hmm like you said, it became important. And that's different, I guess, for everyone geographically, culturally. I think that I'm a little unique in some ways that I went to an arts high school. And so already when we were like 13, 14, 15, we were, you know, massaging, you know, each other's feet, we were doing plays together as young boys, but that isn't everyone's experience and no and, and I wonder if you could talk a bit about that because I just got a sense from the way that you described it that you know you know culturally and familially and just sort of ancestrally there was something there a kind of shift of like oh mm -hmm. like I have to do something about normalizing conversations among among men and and am I picking up on that a little bit or absolutely yeah I mean I mean I grew up in Canada but my parents are from Pakistan, so they have the whole Eastern culture. And, you know, I mean, in our culture, and I think it's kind of the same across the board, but especially in the East Indian culture, men really don't talk about their feelings at all. And that's kind of how I was raised, you know, just growing up. Even if I cried, I was asked, why are you crying? Why? It's not a big deal or stop crying and stuff like that. And I struggled with expressing myself or being able to talk about feelings because I didn't know how it wasn't modeled for me. Um, and then in itself, I also didn't have this confidence in myself to be able to make choices that I truly believed in. So it was almost like, okay, well, this is kind of the defined path for me of getting married and having a family because that's the ultimate goal. And even within that, when I was married and not really happy and struggling. I kept trying to make it work because I'm like, this is what I'm supposed to do. And until I didn't really get out of it and recognize the work I needed to do on myself, I didn't value the importance of getting men to talk because for me, looking back at my experience, I realized I struggled with it so much. And I'm sure there's other men who also are in similar situations, uh, whether it's marital problems or job security or, or other kinds of stresses that we experience in life. 
So how can I create a platform or give others that shared space of being able to express these things or talk about it or ask for help? And, you know, I think if collectively we can all try to do that, we can make a huge difference. But for me, the focus was like on what can I do? And, and you know, it was that whole series of events from childhood that led me to this place where I was truly passionate about it because I re- recognized the impact it had in my life. A lot of people feel that, no? A lot of people, it seems like with every generation and the ways that each generation in a family or a society experience, you know, themselves or, or of course, what we're going through now with this, this attempt, at least in most sort of Western countries to kind of normalize difference you know, I came today from a city in Sweden uh, called Gothenburg, and every bus actually had two rainbow flags, like, jetting out of the front of it. And there were three big ones in the heart of the city. And I don't even think it was related to anything special going on. I feel It just felt like some kind of symbol, you know, like, you're, you're welcome here or something like this. And And it must be very jarring. Like, I work in Sweden where there's a huge expat population. And there's a genuine sense of disorientation. You know, people come here on a work contract from Pakistan, for instance, mm-hmm. you know, from a small village in Pakistan, right to Stockholm yeah. for work for Ericsson or some some tech company or something. And even when someone sits with me and talks about this incredible anxiety of being in a place where they can't act instinctively, right? They have to, you know without any judgment. I'm, I actually have a lot of empathy for what it means to go from place to place. And so I just find all that interesting. I find what you're saying, you know, interesting. I didn't want to suggest earlier that because I ended up in an arts high school that that things were all rosy growing up. Mm-hmm. It certainly helped facilitate things a bit earlier because we were into plays and having to go into our emotions. And so I, I love what you're talking about. It certainly seems really important. And I hear you kind of saying that, that to have that mirrored back by others or to to hear people openly talk about it or or going into talking about exposure therapy something about that mirroring mediating process just helps us uh well it it just i think helps with that real violence i guess of mm-hmm. of of the changing personality and i wanted to ask if it's okay i wanted just to ask how that was for you since we're talking about men and with your own dad, if you don't mind talking yeah, about no, that. What was that like for you with your own father? Did he notice these shifts in you? Um, he hasn't commented on it. I mean, you know, my dad himself, like he, again, he grew up in that culture. So he only knows what he grew up with. And my grandfather, his dad passed away when my dad was fairly young, like only at the age of 19. So you know, I, I think for him also, he didn't have that role model for him himself. So, you know, he struggles with that stuff. But for me, when I was going for therapy, I recognized a lot of my childhood stuff that I'd buried came from both parents, especially with my dad. And it took a lot of courage for me <laughs> at one point. So I noticed there was like, I'm the eldest child and there was distance between my dad and I, and we didn't really have a relationship where we we spoke about a lot of things it was fairly superficial and then I remember going through the motions like of getting married and 
struggling in my marriage and my dad was really supportive. And then after I went for therapy, I actually sat down with him. I remember I was visiting my parents and, you know, I was feeling very courageous. And then I remember one night we were all sitting and I was like, dad, I want to go for coffee with you. There's some important things I need to talk to you about. And my mom and brother were looking at me and they're like, what does he need to talk about? (laughs) And so my dad's like, sure. And now the next day, you know, I'm up and I almost have buyer's remorse. I'm like, oh, why did I say anything? Like (laughs) now I'm scared. I'm like, how am I going to have this conversation? So my dad's like, hey, you know, I'm free this afternoon. Let's go to a coffee shop and hang out. And I was like, oh, I'm like, are you sure? Like, I'm here for a few more days. He's like, no, no, let's do it today. (laughs) So fortunately, you know, I went through with it and it was amazing experience. Like I sat there with my dad and I explained all the stuff I've been carrying. And I told him that I've forgiven him. It's not that I, I hold that against him. But it's important that I tell him that I've forgiven him so he knows because I knew he could he was carrying that, too. And it was just an amazing moment in my life where he took full ownership. There's no defensiveness. And, you know, since then, it's brought us even closer together. And when I tell my other friends about doing that, they're just like blown away because they're like, we would never be able to have that conversation with our dad, even from a cultural perspective. But yeah, like it was hard my whole life. And we never really connected on that level until recently when I took that uh, leap. And for me, ultimately, the focus became around forgiving my parents and not hanging on to the things they did because they were doing the best they could uh, as parents. But ultimately taking that responsibility and ownership within myself to make a difference and choose to do different in my own life. And then also having that grace and compassion for my parents. It's so interesting. I mentioned to you that that on my drive home today, I, I listened to a whole bunch of interviews and um, mm-hmm. there really did seem to be this theme running through a number of them, which was the unavoidability of these, of this friction, you know, that mm-hmm that there can, I think, sometimes be a misconstrued notion in in mental health, or even talking about, for instance, attachment. You know, if we start from the place of, well, okay, if there was a failure to talk about stuff, then ideally the perfect parent, quote unquote, would bring the child into the world and anticipate their mistakes, uh, Mm -hmm. create a safe emotional environment. I mean, how many times do you hear people talk about safe attachment these days, right? It's like, say, you know, and that's the bread and butter of what of what I do to a large extent. On the other hand, I feel like we can get a bit seduced into trying to think that that somewhere out there is this kind of ideal family, ideal culture where people anticipate everyone's needs, people always call everyone the way they want to be called. But the truth is like you're pointing out, the meaning with your father, like the cl- like looking back at your life with him, when you talk to your friends and you reflect it back, Mm-hmm. The the meaning is in the present tense. The meaning isn't oh this this failure happened and and we rectified it. If anything, the story is our relationship is defined by these differences in generations, in geography, mm-hmm. in culture, and through these accidents of whatever history and momentum, 
Mm-hmm. We we now have this kind of treasure trove of, of kind of meaning as a result of these tensions. And so I, I don't mm-hmm. know if I'm kind of just going off on a tangent, but I think that there's something to be said. And that's why I laughed earlier about my day today, which was that I just listened to all these lectures about kind of things not going the way you want them to. And then here mm-hmm. I'm getting frustrated. They're not going the way I want them to. And I'm kind of laughing at the same time as being like, this is really frustrating. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So there's something about how do we, yeah, how do we normalize this and not subscribe to a hyper potentially capitalist notion that we're just, we're all heading towards some kind of perfection and we're just ironing out the wrinkles versus the wrinkles are, that is yeah. life. The wrink, the life absolutely. is in the wrinkles, you know? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, and again, in the moment, as you said, like when things aren't working out as you plan, it's frustrating. It's hard to to see the meaning behind it, but it's only when you reflect, you see the true meaning, right? And for me, I think, the reason why this was also important having that conversation with my dad was, you know, maybe doing a part in breaking that generational trauma. So when my son grows up, you know, it's, it's different. And I kind of manifest that in my relationship with my child, where he's also comfortable having these conversations with me, because I'm sure he's going to have a lot of questions about his parents separating and who did what. And I want to create that environment by role modeling it for him that, Hey, if you want to have that conversation with me by all means, you know, and the way he's experienced is obviously different than I have. And I'm sure he's going to have his own questions. What, um, I don't know, what, what would you want people to know about the kind of intimate interactions that you have with other men in terms of trying to promote or normalize these dialogues? You've referenced a few times that there are friends who kind of look at some of the openness between you and your own father and are like, I don't know if I could ever do that. You mentioned this idea of ex- exposure, of of re- really raising these issues. And I'm just curious what what comes to mind or what what's touched you about, yeah, what you've put out there in the podcast and just maybe any, any memories of, of kind of moments with other men and talking to them that have stayed with you. I mean, there, there's a lot there, but it, it's just ultimately recognizing that everyone I've spoken to and and when we've gone into those depths is there's something every man I have spoken to is carrying some form of shame or trauma from childhood or early life and it's buried so deep that you know a lot of the guys have struggled to face it and some of them have done it privately and and for me, I was also doing it like in private, in isolation. And it was important for me to start talking about it so others can also open up. And that's kind of where when I have these conversations with other men, they're very open and transparent and vulnerable about that shame they've carried. And, and it's even with feeling weak, you know, or feeling like they're not good enough and the shame that comes with it as a man that I should be able to take care of myself. I should be the strong person that protects everyone else around me and provides for everyone. And until you don't shift your perspective, you don't recognize that real strength is in being able to ask for help or or being able to openly talk about your flaws and the mistakes you've made. And so that's kind of the common theme with the men I talk to is getting to the root of the shame 
and being able to talk about it openly. And that's where, again, it comes back to normalizing these conversations. The more we do it, the more you expose yourself to it, the easier it gets. Yeah, the shame is it's often acted out in, in aggression or violence to others or violence to oneself, I guess, right? And that's really what we're talking about, aren't we? The, yeah. In certain cultures, a certain kind of aggression is is not just permissible, it's just part of the kind of structure. And I'm not, I'm not pointing at any one culture here. This mm-hmm. exists in all of our cultures, in all countries. You know, there's yeah. segments of society where I've seen it in my office. I've watched people's bodies. I've seen people get up and just want to run out of the room or or go towards somebody or notice it in myself in moments, right? It's tough. When people start talking about shame, I notice my own... Sometimes I don't notice it because it's so quiet. Like you said, it's buried so deep. Mm-hmm. But other times I'll notice I can't think in those moments when somebody else is in shame. Or, you know, it's funny. I, didn't, I haven't thought about this in a while. But when I first started working as a therapist, People would say the word shame and I actually would go blank. And uh, it was because I really didn't know it in myself until, you know, a good chunk of the way in. And I was like, oh, right. That's why I can't think this, which is so interesting when it comes to emotion. Are you talking about your your son and that we we have to be curious? Otherwise, it just comes out in behavior, I guess, is the, yeah. the prevailing wisdom. Yeah. So I guess it does it does strike at something else that I think is so important right now. And you're living in the US right now, right? You're born, Canada, born in Canada. Yeah. yeah. No, I'm living in Canada. Oh, you're yeah. living in Canada. Okay. Yeah. Have you lived in the US before? No. No. Okay. Where are you in Canada? Calgary. You're in Calgary. Okay. One of the obstacles I think that we're facing is how we collectively deal with shame, particularly male shame. Mm-hmm. Because there seems to be a swift reaction in our culture right now when particularly men are outed. I guess we had it with our governor general, right, who was a woman and was, right, not, not unprecedented, but, um, you know, not in recent memory has a governor general kind of stepped down and she, right, Payette stepped down because she was the reports of her aggression in the, in the workplace. And so it's mm-hmm. not a gender thing. No. But I've been troubled a little bit by our ability to contain and talk about shame without there being just this kind of swift cancellation of people. And there seems to be a toxic kind of cycle of someone's shamed, canceled, and then marginalized. And I always ask Mm -hmm. myself, where does the shame go then? I don't want anyone to be confused. I'm I'm not promoting or advocating anybody who's behaving in a hurtful, aggressive, or or unethical way stays in their role. I'm just wondering, how do we deal with it? How can we include or talk about the kind of toxicity without further marginalizing or alienating people? Which I guess is yeah. part of what you're doing. <laughs> We're trying to yeah, do I know. And I think it's an important thing you've touched on is the whole cancellation of everything is if you're just going to erase something or, or hide it or tuck it away, how are you going to learn from it so how are we equipping people to know better so they can do better if we're just hiding all these mistakes and i think part of it yeah the the work at least my goal is to talk about mistakes openly too because those are part of our life and and i know we were talking offline before but the whole concept of even self-actualization right if you can't get to your best self 
if you're going to just hide parts of yourself, the parts that don't align with your, with the self that you visualize, right? So if I want to be a men's coach and I'm preaching about being vulnerable and doing all these things, and there are certain parts of me that are, is also making mistakes and I'm not openly admitting it because of my fear of imposter syndrome, how am I being the best version of myself? I think that's part of the problem, right? It's, it's again, <laughs> it comes back to shame. Like there's this shame from society for making mistakes. It's if you're portraying yourself as someone, you need to be a hundred percent aligned with that vision. And it, that's not real. That's not realistic. Yes. Right. It's not realistic to be a hundred percent aligned with anything, I guess. That's the, yeah. right. That's a lovely idea for us to hold together. Right. The, cause I struggle with that. I struggle with the ways that we try and talk about these ideas. And so for instance, I don't, I like the notion of authenticity, but I also think it's problematic because we're never fully authentic. Mm-hmm. We're always catching up with ourselves. We're always, you know, it's, it's, that's why I guess it's, it's, we, we they call it the, Jung called it the, the dynamic unconscious or the dynamic mm-hmm. psyche. And I guess that makes me think too about, has your father listened to your podcast or is, is he? <laughs> no, he hasn't. <laughs> it's just not his thing and he's not really uh, a techie. So <laughs> when I put it out there, uh, that that was a particular vulnerability for me with my family. It was a bit, it felt next level. Like we'd had many conversations and, but it just felt, it felt next level, not just with my family, but with others as a kind of uh, raw exposure there. I guess I'm bringing that up just to, to think about the fact that you and I, two men, different cultures, thousands of kilometers away mediating this conversation through very contemporary technology. Yeah. I often think about the role that culture plays, you know, in the evolution of how we relate to ourselves and our emotions. And I think that it's been going on for a lot longer. I don't know if I mentioned this in in my last podcast or not, but that I'd found this book at my cottage this summer from 1947. And it was an American physician who wrote a book called Psychosomatic Medicine. Mm-hmm. And he was talking about how the love between parents was so important for the development of the child. Yeah. The child, if, you know, if, if that doesn't exist or the parents don't do something about it, you know, that it'll, it'll really affect the development of the child. And I don't mean that in any conservative way. There's many ways that can happen, right? Love can be acknowledging certain things or having to do something about the relationship or, you know, but I was just amazed that, that we, you know, we think we're very contemporary. We, we think we're very actualized or we're here talking about emotions, but yeah. It seems to me that this has been going on for a long, a long time, and we almost have to reinvent it for ourselves, each of us in our own lives, in our own way. And absolutely, yeah, yeah. I mean, like some of the stuff I've been reading is from the 1920s or the 1930s. And what were you reading? You know, what, what, what do you, what have you been? Well, so there's this poet. He was Pakistani, actually. Um, his name is Alama Iqbal, and he talks about the whole concept of self. And he takes a whole religious spin on it, but he basically talks about, you know, grow yourself to the point where even God asks you, like, you know, are you doing the right things, right? Like, so it's it's like you need to be able to, it starts with a pure heart and, and finding love for yourself where you can create that higher self within you 
that there's no distinction between you and God. So it's pretty, pretty deep. <laughs> but yeah, just What's his reading last that, name again, just so people can uh, hear it clearly. Uh, Iqbal. So I Q B A L. Yeah, but very profound stuff. And I just recently, you know, started thinking about it because I, I knew about his poetry, but really getting into the depths of it and and what it means, and I've found it quite fascinating. Did I hear you right that that you grow yourself to the point and correct me here where you almost yeah. confuse God, like God is like God is now asking you, like there's there's almost no yeah. So you're basically you're getting to that higher self that, and at least this is my interpretation. Uh, I'm sure there's different interpretations of it, and and I don't want to offend anyone, but for me, the way I interpret it is, you're getting yourself to this higher self where you're basically, there's no distinction between you and God. Like obviously God's created all beings, but you're also at a higher self. You're doing all that work internally. And then you said even where God is asking you what you're doing. Yeah. Can you say more about that? What, did, what, what does that mean for you? I, I find that idea so interesting. I think it's basically you're, for me, what it means is, are you happy with the choices you're making basically you know we're all individuals who make choices in life and deep down the whole concept of self deep down we know the impurities we have in our lives so if we can consciously make these choices knowing that we're doing our best that's to me you've gotten to that higher self if that makes sense yeah, it's not it's not the same thing, but it, but for some reason in my mind, as you talk about it, there's this there's this idea in therapy where you know the patient becomes a therapist, and there, mm -hmm. there's this sort of like it dissolves in some ways, like you don't yeah. know, you know, the hierarchy is gone, you know, and I think there's a there's an attitude that one can bring from the beginning of therapy, which at least works against the hierarchy to the best of one's ability, right? That's something we can sort of consciously intend as a, as a therapist or even as a patient, right? To come in mm -hmm. and, you know, be aware that there's a kind of horizontality there. But again, referencing a lot of what I listened to today, there is a kind of giving over, I guess, to our imperfection, right? There's a giving over to, I want to say not being in control, but that sounds like a well-worn path, right? That that, yeah, that yeah. people often talk about that, right? To to give up control, but but there's something I think about a deep acceptance of, as you were pointing out, you know, it's our impurity and our faults is at the basis of what what means that we're alive and we're human. Mm -hmm. There's something freeing about that, I think. Something freeing. I think I even felt it in my body earlier today, unrelated to before we met, about, mm -hmm. you know, just kind of watching life or holding life a little bit more, you know, gently in terms of, of the ways that things evolve in our life. Yeah. No, I think for me, it's, you know, when I start thinking about it is being able to accept everything, right? And and when you you mentioned flaws, that is part of life that we are flawed and and that's the beauty of it and we can hide those parts of ourselves and not be whole or we can accept it all and and recognize that life is a continuous journey of making mistakes and learning from them and continuing to grow from them and, and giving that space and and compassion to everyone including yourself yeah. Yeah. It's always, there's something trembling about it. 
I find that <laughs> it is these these plateaus in life and and I never know what the next sort of challenge to that sense of uh, understanding is going to be but it's yeah. and that's what I was listening to today that I think they were saying that Hegel was really pointing to is that this is not about eradicating violence mm-hmm. and this is something that even that even Zizak talks about Slavoj Zizak the the Slovenian philosopher will say that you know even these even these very violent eruptions in our politics, whether it's the withdrawal recently from Afghanistan, whether it's the Black Lives Matters movement, you know, the, these are part and parcel of the evolutions or our own personal versions of that, right? Mm-hmm. Relationships that we struggle with or workplace. But I guess when we're in it, that's the thing, right? When we're in it, we don't have that sense of perspective. That's the whole point, right? Wholeness is not, oh, I know I'm whole. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Wholeness is an attitude, right? Wholeness is an intention. It's just like, I'm going to try to maintain some sense of curiosity, which I know I talk about a lot on this podcast, but it's, mm-hmm. it's, I think when we're in it, if we're really in it, we don't know if we're going to come out the other side. And, th- and that's something I like to think about because it, I think our language can get a bit flowery, you know, mm-hmm. like the, the rising from the ashes or this implicit mm-hmm. Christian narrative that, oh, if you go through this, you'll come out the other side and you'll be better. And it's like, well, I don't, when we're in it, we don't know that. So we also have to entertain the opposite of that, that it's like, I don't know if I will actually, or if this will mean anything. (laughs) Yeah. Anything else that you'd want folks to know about your podcast, where they can find you before we pause? Because I suspect I'd love to connect again. It's uh, a nice connection for me. I feel a nice, I I get why people would come to you and feel safe and, and that you'd be helping a lot of people to to at least sort of prime the pump if you will of of conversations and yeah yeah no that's the goal um and you know i appreciate again you giving me the opportunity to come on here and and have this conversation with you yeah i mean you know if people want to check out the podcast talked about it it's easy so ez conversations uh it's on pretty much every platform and then I'm also on Instagram uh, at Unoia Zen, so E-U-N-O-I-A-Z-E-N. Um, those are the two ways to, to find me or get a hold of me. I love engaging with people, having conversations like this. And uh, yeah. Cool. We should do something on Instagram together. That'd be yeah. fun. Uh, yeah, I would love that. Yeah. I've been really liking that engagement there. It's nice to talk to people. Cool. Well, thank you for making the time today and and uh yeah it's good to look at you and kind of feel all the feels and talk about this (laughs) (laughs) yeah no thanks mitchell i appreciate it i think the world is a better place with people like furkan who have taken up the mantle in their life of challenging patriarchal ideas challenging old social norms recognizing a a significant difference between the thrust of of his own life, which may be culturally or informed by certain gender stereotypes, and uh, digging deep and making space for other men. And I certainly loved his energy and reciprocity in our conversation. So sending all my love out to you all. Thank you again for listening, for all the things you send me and the interactions that we have on Instagram together. 
It's a good place to hang out and connect. Again, at I am Mitchell Smolkin, and I remain faithfully yours. <laughs> 